just so you're aware of what went on. So we get down there first. Our first uh, two, uh, two to three days in Nigeria was training pastors, missionaries, and leaders, ministry leaders, to be able to go out. Uh, the first uh, stop was to go out as a... Uh, as a uh, like a rehash for the Jesus film team. So we train them how to go show the movie, how to present the movie, how to disciple the people who get saved uh, in the areas where they go to, and uh, how to teach through the Word. So we did that for two days, and we moved up north. Uh, things in Nigeria are a little dicier the further north you get. So we went up to the border of, uh, of the dicey area. We went to a place called Joss, and uh, the first time we were in Abuja... We went to Joss, and in Joss, we did the same thing, trained a team. This is a new team, never had any equipment. We brought the equipment with us. We trained them to use the equipment, taught them how to teach through the Bible. At the same time, they had a missionary conference for uh, about uh, 300 to 400 missionaries, pastors, and leaders from around Nigeria. They were all there, so we had an opportunity to, to do a conference with them. Uh, we... we taught multiple times uh, for the next three days while we were there and equipped them and we did three Jesus film showings. So the first Jesus film showing we did, uh, 50 people got saved. The second Jesus film showing we did, 70 people got saved. The third Jesus film showing we did, 200 people got saved. So, so a little better than 300 people that, uh, that gave a profession of faith. And the great thing about it is that, that the way we set it up, uh, there is, uh, prior to the Jesus film going in, they established a, a church in the community, in the village. Some of the villages, no water, uh, literally none, no running water of any kind. Uh, so they're, they're uh, humping for their water. And then uh, uh, basically uh, farming or raising uh, cattle are the two things that they might do in Nigeria to sustain themselves. So we go down, we establish a, a pastor and a small church in the community. Then we go, then we show, then people come forward. Then they have a place to go and somebody to teach them and somebody to walk with them through the Word. So, so basically that's what Jesus Film has been doing. There are seven teams in Nigeria. Uh, we planted the seventh team in November. Uh, some other guys are going down to plant the eighth team. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 180 million people in Nigeria, so there's a, a lot of people. But here's some, one of the things to keep in prayer. In Abuja, the, the refugees of the north, so there's a bunch of Muslim fighting in the north, and that fighting has created about 30,000 uh, refugees that are all in Abuja in 11 different camps. And uh, basically, they, they don't have anything. So whatever you can imagine... You know, as a refugee camp looking at, you're, you're probably right. It's, uh, it's not real great. It's not a good setup. Uh, the vast majority of the refugees are uh, under the age of 15. So, uh, so there's a pretty big need down there. And the Jesus film that we started with, that we kind of got re-going and repaired some of their equipment, that's the area that they're going to be going out and trying to make a dent in. The exciting thing is... It's kind of hard, it's dangerous for us as missionaries to go as far north as the refugees come from. Maybe God in his wisdom has brought the refugees where we could get to them, where we could uh, see Christ change their lives, and one day they'll go home. 
and take the gospel with them when they go. So uh, if you would keep that in prayer, I appreciate it. And, and Wednesday or next Sunday, we'll, well, probably not next Sunday, is Easter. Eventually, I'll give you a complete uh, a deal on, on what all went up, but I wanted to, to give you a quick rundown on what happened. And uh, Jerry will do our reading for this morning. Thanks, Jerry. And we'll be in chapter 19, and uh, we'll be going through verses 28 through 44. Okay, when he had said to them this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a coat tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing him? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of him. So those who were sent departed and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the coat, the owners of it said to him, Why are you loosing the coat? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own garments on the coat, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, they spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Would you pray for me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for this gathering today and the privilege it is to gather before you, Lord. Thank you for guiding our pastors safely home to us, Lord. Not since the Civil War, God, has our nation been so divided. But we are so thankful that we can be united here today in the reading and the studying of your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon Jackie as he brings forth your word. Bless it, Lord. Bless the people here that hear it, Lord, and those that are in the broad, listening to the broadcast. We thank you so much in your name. We pray. Amen. So this morning, we find ourselves at... Uh, Palm Sunday, five days to the crucifixion, seven days to a resurrection. The interesting thing, I think, as we come to this is so often, we're, whenever we do things that we do all the time, you guys get what I'm saying, like Easter? We hear the story so much, we are, we miss, we're missing it. 
we're, we're, and I'm hoping this morning maybe we can, can grab some of those things and, and locate them. Because we have Bible prophecy happening in this story. Uh, Jesus' triumphal entry. You have people praising God and you have a prediction of judgment. That's all part of the triumphal entry of Christ. And it all plugs into history. So hopefully we have a little bit of a grasp on what that history looks like. And maybe if we do, the picture will become a little clearer. What's happening? So we need to go back. We need to back up. So we're going to back up all the way to the exile. So we're going back uh, to the captivity of the nation of Israel by Babylon. So we just want to try to think of some of these things as we consider the triumphal entry and what that's all about. We have a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. You guys probably remember him for our study through Daniel. We talked a lot about Nebuchadnezzar. We have Nebuchadnezzar roughly at uh, 607 B.C., begins the captivity of the southern kingdom. Now, you're often going to hear these phrases, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, because the nation of Israel, a little bit like the nation of the United States, became divided. They had north versus south. Sound familiar? The north were the bad guys with Israel. The north were the bad guys. They were the guys who were done with God. We don't have nothing to do with God. We're going to go make our own gods. And we're going to worship them. So they're called Israel. The Maybe you've heard the ten lost tribes. You ever heard that phrase? Ten tribes, roughly, the territory of ten tribes, go north. Two tribes in the south stay with the Lord. Two tribes in the south become Judah. The southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom now, in our story, is already gone. They've already been captured, the, the land's been destroyed, they're, they're over. Now we're just talking about the two tribes that are, that are left in the south, Judah. And Judah, the Lord's been talking to them, Judah turn, Judah turn, what's going on? Why? Why do you want to continue down the road of destruction? Stop what you're doing. They won't listen, won't listen, won't listen. So the day comes, 607 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar goes down and uh, makes Jehoiakim... Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, he makes him a vassal. And that's the year he makes Jehoiakim a vassal. You guys will remember this story. That's the first first time Babylon takes over Judah. He takes out four guys you know the names of. Daniel, right? Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've heard about all those, right? That's the first captivity, 607 B.C. Now, at the same time that's going on, you have a guy named Jeremiah. Anybody heard of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? The weeping prophet is down in Jerusalem telling the people, hey, this is part of God's judgment, just accept it, and this is as bad as it ever has to get. Just accept it. Stay here. I got, there's, there's something that I want you to be able to grasp and to glean from it. But the people were unwilling. After three years, they rebel. Nebuchadnezzar goes back. Destroys or, or, or attacks Jerusalem again. And he's going to take what's called the, the second group that's going to go into exile. In that second group, you have a, a Jehoiakim 
who's going to be drug away to, to Babylon, and part of that second group is going to carry another guy you know. His name is Ezekiel. Anybody ever heard of him? He's also a prophet, but now he's going to be the voice of God, the prophet of God in Babylon. You have Daniel in Babylon, Ezekiel in Babylon, Jeremiah in Jerusalem. Everybody still with me? Okay, so we're, we're wanting to see peace. So Nebuchadnezzar sets up a guy named King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah is supposed to just toe the line. Jeremiah's in Jerusalem. Guys, let's go. Come on. Get it right. This is as bad as it's got to be. This is God's plan. This is God's judgment uh, for his people. And so after nine years, Zedekiah leads a rebellion against Babylon one final time. Nebuchadnezzar comes back and Jerusalem is totally destroyed. All of it. Temple, buildings, gone. Utterly and completely wiped out. As that occurs, we have uh, 70 years, right? Daniel, in seeking the Lord, discovers that there's 70 years of captivity. So it's going to be 70 years before the children of Israel come out of the land. That's supposed to be the return of the exiles, okay? So the exiles are supposed to come back to the land. So there's two books of the Bible that deal with that time. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, the people come back. They build the temple, but they're, they're poor. They don't have any money. They don't have any real support. And so they build a frail, tiny, 60 cubits smaller than the original measurements that God gave uh, for the first temple. And in fact, the old men, when they see it, they weep. Because it's, it's so bad in comparison to the temple that used to be there. And for the next 400 years, bad guys are going to come, battle in Jerusalem, and knock the temple over. They're going to put it back up again. Knock it over, put it back up again. Destroy things. Antiochus Epiphanes. Anybody familiar with that name? Antiochus Epiphanes, which is a shadow of the Antichrist is one of those characters who's going to do that. Finally, in, I want to say 39 B.C., in 39 B.C., you guys can check it and, and see if I'm right, Herod, you guys have heard of him, right? He's going to take control of the temple at Mount, he's going to kill all the priests and all those who are defending the temple, but he's not going to let the Romans go in. And then Herod's going to tell the people, Hey, look, this is a shack. I don't know what you're all upset about. I'm going to fix it. So Herod tears it down. And he builds what's more commonly known as the second temple. Some people call it the third temple. He does a renovation beginning in 20 B.C. He doesn't finish it until 63 A.D. 20 B.C., 63 A.D. That's the temple that Jesus is on His way to in the story we just read. Okay, well, what's all that history got to do with anything? That's it. What's that history tell me? Well, I hope you can begin to see in that history that a, there's an event that occurs. Ezekiel tells us about it. It's called the departing of the glory. 
In the original temple, every time a high priest went into the temple to offer the, the sacrifice, you know, sitting between the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant was the kabod. Or some people, sometimes it's called the shekinah. The kabod, it means weight. Shekinah means light, brightness. It was the presence of God. In our Bibles, it says glory. The glory of God. When they built the temple, you remember the glory of God comes in and the glory of God drove all the priests out. Now it doesn't tell us what, 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 what about the glory drove them out. It just uses those two words. Kabod Shekinah. The idea of the, the weightiness of God and the brightness of God. His presence. They couldn't be in the same place so they all went outside of the temple. That was in the temple. All the way... Until Ezekiel chapter 10. In Ezekiel chapter 10, we'll take a look at it together. I don't have time to do the whole chapter. So uh, you can hit me up later and we can discuss some of the things in it. It's kind of an exciting chapter to take a look at. Uh, Ezekiel says this, Then I looked and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. So what I want you, I want you to see, we're, we're kind of in the middle of a story in Ezekiel, from Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11, which are all talking about, uh, uh, God's judgment over Israel. Remember, Ezekiel's where? In Babylon, right? The people are in Jerusalem, still fighting against God's plan. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet's in Jerusalem, telling them to stop. Ezekiel is in Babylon, telling the people who are captives, hey, God's plan is what we're in right now, not, not what rebellion is going on in Jerusalem. And he has this vision. And in this vision, he sees cherubim, four cherubim. They're going to be described. And you have the concept of wheels within wheels within wheels. If you read Ezekiel, you should be somewhat familiar with that idea. What is being described in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10 is what is called the throne chariot of God. The throne chariot of God. Let me give you an example. You guys all heard of Elijah the prophet, right? Right? How did he go to heaven? On a, on a flaming chariot? A chariot of fire? Chariot of fire or the throne chariot of God. Now the throne chariot of God is not pulled by horses. How does it move? Angels. Where are the angels at? By the four wheels. By the four, it's not a, a flying saucer. People always want to get weird when they get to Ezekiel and go, flying saucers, flying saucers. It's not flying saucers. It's a throne chariot. It was something that was common in their time. Some of the false gods had similar depictions to what we're talking about when we look at this. So I want you to see this, the throne. When you see the throne with the four angels at the four corners of the throne that can go in every direction next to the wheels that are burning, the idea, a whole concept of the idea is you got the flaming chariot, the same one that took Elijah up into heaven, the same one that Ezekiel saw in the beginning of his prophecies, the same one here, it means God's presence and God's about to move. God's about to move. That's kind of important for our story. God came down and he grabbed Elijah and what did he do? Took him to heaven. God moved. He said, come on, you're out of here. There's some other things we talk about in the Bible that are similar, but I won't jump down into that yet. So, 
you have this description. Ezekiel chapter 10. This is what he's saying. Now, he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with the burning coals from between the cherubim scattered over the city. The burning coals under the throne of God. The burning coals. Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord and high and lifted up at his throne. Remember, I'm a man of unclean lips. And they took a burning coal, remember, and touched it to his lips and purged him. Made that which was unclean, clean. So you have the same thing, the burning coals at the throne of God being scattered into the city. God's judgment. God's judgment is coming to the city of Jerusalem. What we're talking about, what we just read on the history, here's what I want you to get from it. It says, And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. When the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court, this is a temple, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God, and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside the wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between uh, the, the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, took some of it in the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. And the cherubim appeared to have a form of a human hand under their wings. Look at verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings, mounted up from the earth before my eyes. They went out and the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These are the living creatures I saw underneath the God of Israel at the Kabar Canal, and I knew they were the cherubim. Each had four faces, each four wings, under their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces that appeared as I seen them at the Kabar Canal. Each one went straight. Forward. So you have four cherubim standing at the four wheels that are going to be the motor for the chariot of God, the throne chariot of God, which we just read, the glory of God, which was on the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, got up, moved over to the throne chariot of God, and the four angels took it out. The glory of God left. The temple of God is empty. God's not in it. From Ezekiel chapter 10. The, the true prophets of God with Jeremiah who would give the true word of God to the people were being rejected over and over and over again by the people. Because they wanted to listen to the false prophets. They wanted to hear what the false prophets had said. So what happens, what we read about in Ezekiel 10, what happened at the exile in the Babylon is the glory of God departed the temple and it has never been there since until the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ is the return of the glory of God to his father's house remember we're not going to get to that part of the story today but remember, what's the first thing Jesus is going to do when he gets there? He's going to cleanse it, right? He's going to overturn the tables. Why? Because they're charging people to worship God. You can't come worship, you've got to pay. Have you paid? You haven't paid, you can't come. 
So he's going to overturn the tables. He's going to overturn all that. And it said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So he cleanses the house. And for the next four days, he's going to stay there. We're going to talk about it when we get to this in our own study of Luke. But he's going to stay there for four days and he's going to teach them. And he's going to present himself to them as the glory of God that has returned into the temple. And the people are going to reject the glory of God. And the last time Jesus leaves the temple, he's going to turn around and he's going to say to them, See then, your house is left to you desolate, empty. He no longer says, this is my father's house. What's he say? Your house is empty. See, the story of the triumphal entry is the return of the glory of God to the temple of God that has been empty for more than 400 years of God's presence. They hadn't, they hadn't seen that glory when the priests went in anymore. They just figured that's how it had always been. You know, they'd go in and offer an offering, it's just dark. Well, this is how it always was. There was never really any light here. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the light, the glory of God was always there. Until the glory departed, until the glory got onto the, the throne chariot of God and went back to heaven. And the next time the glory of God is going to come, it's the story we're reading. Jesus came. If only you had known this your day. If you knew that I'm the glory of God coming back, I'm here. That's the proclamation of Palm Sunday. That's the proclamation that that God is laying out. Listen, there is a return of the glory of God. In fact, if you a careful reading of Ezekiel chapter 10 is going to tell you that he goes out the east gate. The glory of God goes out the eastern gate. You, you, you know the eastern gate, right? They also called the golden gate. The Jews called it Sha'ar Harachamim. It's the gate of mercy. Jesus, when he enters in, on the triumphal entry, is going to walk in what gate? The gate of mercy. He's going to present himself once more in the temple and ultimately be rejected. But not plan B. But as he's being rejected, he is bringing about the ultimate mercy. The ultimate grace, the provision of salvation as we see it. So when we look at the story that we're looking at today, I want you to look at it in in view of being able, don't disconnect it from the history. Don't disconnect it from the context or you miss the idea that that here you have a temple that's been empty. It's just a building. When all you guys leave, go out the door, there's not something glowing inside this building, right? Why? Because when you guys go out the door, the glory of God goes with you. It doesn't stay in the building. Because now God doesn't need a temple because according to the New Testament, your body is the temple of God. And where does God take up residence? So in your body is the Shekinah, the Kabbat of God, the weight and the, and the light of God. Right? The idea that we're supposed to be lights to a world. Yeah, because we reflect the light of who? Jesus Christ. It's not my light I'm reflecting, it's His light. I'm now I have become the temple. I don't, I don't need a building. I am the building. 
We don't want to disconnect what's going on in the story of the triumphal entry of Christ and lose sight of, here comes God's glory, back into the temple, once again to come. And we don't want to lose sight of the prophecy. We don't want to lose sight of all that, because if we do, you're going to miss the story and why, why, why it's important at all. People have been preaching on Palm Sunday forever. And they preach a lot of different messages on Palm Sunday. But the story of Palm Sunday is that story. The glory of God had returned. But Jesus is going to say, but it's hidden from your eyes. It's hidden from your eyes. Let's look at that. In Luke 19, verse 28. Let's talk about it. Three things I told you. Prophecies being fulfilled, people are praising, and a prediction of judgment. Right? Let's look at the prophecies. And when he had said these things, Luke 19, 28, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage, which means the house of figs, Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount, which is called Olivet, Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village in front of you. When you're entering, you will find a colt tied upon which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You will say, the Lord has need of it. So those uh, who were sent away uh, and found it just as he had said, and as they were untying the colt, the owner said, why are you untying my colt? And they said to him, the Lord has need of it. This is how the story begins. Again, we come to familiar stories and we don't take time and we don't pay attention to what we're reading and we miss things. We miss things. We've heard about this. So let's talk about it. The Lord has need of him. The Lord. There's something special. There's something about the donkey. Right? Otherwise, why even tell you the story? There's something he wants you to get about the donkey. Something special going on with the donkey. So he, he says, when somebody asks you, if the owner asks you, say, the Lord has need of him. Why does God need him? Why would God on that day need a donkey? In Matthew 21, the same story, guys, it says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. There's a prophecy in Zechariah. A king will come to you, riding a donkey. That never happened. Okay, kings don't ride donkeys. Ever. No king ever got into a procession to enter into the city that he was king of and said, you know what, guys, what I need is a donkey. It never happened. They want the biggest, baddest, meanest, craziest looking horse they could find. They want to put all kind of armor on that horse so they look tough. Nobody wants to come rolling up in, in a, on a donkey. Well, how can we compare this? I don't know. If you come driving into town to make a, a good first impression, nobody is thinking to themselves, you know what I need? An AMC pacer. I'm going to enter into town for the first time so everybody can see me in my new pacer. Now, a bunch of kids are going, oh, what? Yeah, just thank God it don't exist anymore. That's all I can tell you. Nobody wanted that. If we're coming, first impression, I want to come with the best I got. I want to come with the biggest and the, and the, something that really says who I am and what I'm about. And so God said, 
when I introduce myself again to the people, I want them to know what I'm about. I need a donkey. So Zechariah the prophet said, your king comes to you. Lowly. Humble. Riding a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. If we look at the other gospel accounts, here's what you're going to discover. There was a mama donkey and a colt. The foal of a donkey. And they're going to loose them both. Because the Lord doesn't separate the mom from the colt. But Jesus isn't riding on both of them. He's riding on the colt. Why? Why would that matter? Why, why is that even part of the story? Because the scripture says this. You will find a colt upon which no one has ever sat. No one's ever wrote it. Guys, whenever the Bible gives us that phrase, no one's ever wrote it. No one's ever put a yoke on it. This has never been used before. This has never been, they've never used this animal or this thing or this being in this certain way. It's God's way of saying, this is set apart for sacred space. It means something, some special way that God's going to use it. There's a special way God wants to use it. I'll give you an example out of the Bible. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, you guys may be familiar with the story when the when the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant was lost to the Philistines and they're going to send that Ark back. <clears throat> Anyways, one of the things it says, 1 Samuel 6, it says, Now then, take and prepare a new cart. This is, uh, this is David this time. Take and prepare a new cart, two milk cows, on which has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart. But take the calves away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box and its figures of gold which are return, uh, returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go away. So the, the Philistines are sending it back to the, to the nation of Israel. Eli had lost it. It's going back. This is a story. But they say take two cows. The important part is this. Two cows upon whom there had never been a yoke. That was set apart, that animal, that, that's not a normal, it's not the normal use of the animal. The animal wasn't just, hey, just use what you, what you got that, that's already been used for that and we'll just switch it around and make it for God now. Instead, it was when we use something for the divine, when we use something for God, we find something upon which has never been sat. We find something upon which has never been yoked. We find something that's never been used like that before. So we get this idea in our mind the colt this colt that had been tied to the tree had never been used what's the significance it's set apart for sacred purpose there's a sacred purpose for this colt the one upon which no one is set that is a hebrew idiom stating that colt is to be used specifically by god it's the same phrase you're going to see used with a red heifer the same phrase in the story I just told you, same phrase here with Jesus as he's using this donkey. And the next thing I want you to see is the, is the idea of humility. Zechariah 9 9. Listen to what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. Mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophecy is, here comes your king. He's a humble king. 
through the gate of mercy. Here comes your king. He's merciful. Here comes your king. He's righteous. And he has salvation. He has the way in which to save. John 3.17. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? John 3.17 says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He didn't come to condemn. He came through the mercy gate. He didn't come for war. He rode a donkey. He didn't come at like some big shot. He came humbly through the gate of mercy as a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. In Luke 19, we, we look back at the story once again. Luke 19, verse 35. It says, And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it, and as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. We've heard that 10,000 times. What's that about? What is that? What does it mean? They, they had palm branches. They call it Palm Sunday, right? Palm branches, and they're waving their palm branches, and they're throwing their clothes down on the ground so that the, the, the colt of the donkey that Jesus is on can walk across their clothes. It's weird. It's kind of a weird, crazy thing. But, you know, it's there in the Bible. And so we read about it. It's a sign of honor to the king. When you threw your clothes down before him, it said, You're my king, and I will serve you. So you threw your clothes down before the king. It's not the first time it happened. King Jehu, in 2 Kings 9.13, it says, Then, in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed, Jehu is king. They put their clothes under him. Similar state for the king of Israel. Proclaiming, you're my king. You're my king. Every time they took their coat and they threw it down, it's them saying, look, I'm yours. I'm yours. You're my king. And I serve you. They waved the branches. What was that all about? It was a proclamation of joy, excitement, that their king had come. The people are all excited. Here comes their king on a donkey through the gate of mercy to the temple. The returning of the glory of God. They're rejoicing, waving their palm branches. Leviticus 23.40, when it talks about the, the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, make sure you go cut down these branches of palm branches. Go cut down these other branches with their leaves on them and wave them to the Lord as a rejoicing. What are they doing here? It says the same thing. Go cut down the branches. Read Matthew 21. Read Mark. It says they went down and they cut down the branches and they're waving as a rejoicing for the Lord. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. You're our King, Jesus. You're our King. This is what they're proclaiming. You're ours. I'm throwing my clothes down at your feet. There's a similar thing that occurs in heaven when the saints are all gathered there and it says they're all on their face before the King, before Jesus Christ. And they cast their crowns at His feet. You are my King. It's not about me. It's about you. They rejoice. 
They throw their, their garments, they spread them out on the, on the road as a sign of honor. We're ready and willing to serve you. And as a sign of rejoicing, they're waving the palm branches as he's walking by. You guys have all seen the movies before, right? Jesus is walking in, that's what it looks like, yes? That's how it's depicted. What I want you to understand, don't disconnect it from the history of everything that had gone before. The glory had left. The children had been exiled. God had never been there since. The only way any part of God was anywhere around the city from the time of the exile until the time of Jesus Christ was in His prophets. In the men He sent, Ezra and Nehemiah. That's it. And now you have this entry, the people proclaiming, God, you're our king. That's what they're saying to the Lord. That's what they're saying to Jesus. In fact, it moves us right into the idea that people were praising, right? We have prophecy fulfilled and people praising. Look at it. It says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They begin to praise him. We're praising you. We're praising you. Why are they praising him? What are they praising him for? All the mighty works he'd done. I'm praising you because you made my life better. Made it easier. I was blind, but now I see. I was lame, but now I can walk. How many of us know that those are physical ailments? And a blind man can be given his sight and still go to hell. And a lame man can still be able to walk and go to hell. And a dead man can be given his life back and still die and go to hell. They praised him for the mighty works he had done. They followed him when he fed him. But they never heard the word when he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I've been talking a little bit about, as we've been going through, the concept that all the healings that Jesus did were types, signs. Jesus giving us an illustration of what? What is the illustration? That you can see these people are broken and I can make them whole. And he wants everybody to understand, I am the one who can make your brokenness whole. We spend our life, and I know it confuses a lot of people, so listen to what I'm not saying first, and I'll tell you what I am. I'm not saying God doesn't heal, so don't go crazy. I'm not saying God doesn't heal. God healed me of HIV. How can I say God doesn't heal? God does heal. But when God heals, that is not the great thing. When God saves, that is a great thing. God could have healed me of HIV and I could burn in hell forever. The greater work was when He saved me. He saved me. He could have done that and never healed me at all. And if all I can do is focus on the healing and the things I can have here, then my belly's full, and then my bank account works good, and then everything in my life just matches up with everything else, and everything's so smooth and everything's so great then I will sound just like a bunch of people who lay their clothes down before a king and say, you're my king! And four days later say, crucify him! 
you didn't do that the way I thought you should. I mean, you're my king as long as you do what I think you should do. You're my king as long as you act like I think you should act. You're my king as long as nothing in my life really disappoints me I don't have an answer for. Now, for how many of us does that even begin to comport with reality? It's not reality. I met an 18-year-old girl in Nigeria. I took a picture with her. Um, her name was Blessing. She was five months old when her mother died. The way the tribe deals with this situation, if a mother dies with a baby, is they bury the baby alive with the mom. 180 million people. I can tell you of at least one baby that, for whom that didn't happen. Her name's Blessing. She's 18 years old now. Because in her village, there was a pastor. Somebody had took the time to share the gospel with. Who got saved and began to grow in his understanding of the Lord and said, it's not okay to bury a baby alive with his dead mom. And so he saved her. I can't tell you how many times that hasn't happened. I can't tell you how many babies have been buried with their mom because their mom died in childbirth or their mom died when they were, before their birthday, they called their name day before their birthday. If they, if they die before their first birthday, they take the baby's life. So it's too much of a hassle, too much of a strain on the village to take care of that child. That's just one little thing in one little country in a big world. How many more other things like that are there? And how many people have said, God, this wasn't my plan, so if it's not going to go according to my plan, we're going to take her life. Now, she's a beautiful lady. She's going to get married one day. She's going to have children. They're going to know the gospel. See, the path of life always brings life. It might not be easy, but it'll bring life. How many people will proclaim to God, you're my king, but what if it doesn't happen this way? They're praising him and they're glorifying him. And we're going to see in a moment that the, the Pharisees are going to say, shut them all up. And Jesus is going to say, no, let them praise. And they're praising him. It's a good thing to praise God. And you always hear people say, well, they're praising God and they're proclaiming Him as their Messiah. No, they're proclaiming Him as a Messiah in their own image. They're proclaiming Him not as the Messiah that God said was coming. They're proclaiming Him as King because He healed them, because He fixed them, because He solved their problems. And by Friday, some of these people are going to be shouting, crucify Him, give us Barabbas. The day the glory of God came back into the temple of God. In a little place called Israel. They're praising Him for their miracles. The greatest miracle that God does is not healing someone of HIV. That's a pretty incredible miracle. By the way, I don't know of anybody else God's done that for. And I thought it was pretty incredible when he did it. For us, all them, 
almost 100 years ago now. The, yeah, no kidding. But the greatest miracle of God was transforming my life. Changing me from the inside out. The greatest miracle is salvation. That's the greatest miracle. That's what they need. That's what everything Jesus did and said was illustrating. Not that you need a a, a miracle where God can give you more money. You, You can have all the money in the world and still go to hell. That doesn't save you. Does God heal? Do we pray for the sick to be healed? Yes. Yes, He heals. Yes, we pray for that because the Bible tells us to do it, right? I know what the Bible says. But if all we can see, when we sing a beautiful song that, that says, I know you're my healer. I know God's my healer. I know He's my healer. But I'm not looking for healing of the temporal. I'm looking for healing of the broken man that nobody can see. The brokenness inside of me that nobody knows is there. The garbage that flows through my mind and the stuff that happens every day of my life that I know is there but nobody else can see. And I can paint it all white and I can make it look pretty. But then I'll be guilty of the Pharisees when they looked at the Pharisees and Jesus said, You are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Because you didn't understand what was going on. I'm trying to tell you I can heal you on the inside. I've, in almost 25 years of ministry, I can't tell you how many people I've seen walk away from the Lord because they didn't get a healing they wanted. Sometimes we're not okay with God being God. Are we? Sometimes we're not okay with God saying no. Calvary Chapel of Redlands, we prayed for... Twin boys. You remember how old they were, babe? So we'll call them seven. I don't remember how old they were. They were young. Who had uh, gotten uh, HIV as a result of blood transfusion. They got some bad blood. Uh, and so they were, they were getting sick. And it, apart from God intervening, they were going to die. And I know God heals from HIV because he did it for me. So we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and God took those boys to heaven. And I struggled with that for a long time. What did you save me for? I'd trade it right now. Take, save, them, save them seven-year-olds. I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm broken and I'm... Because I, I, I know what's inside of me. I know what happens. Why, do you, why save me? That's a, a waste... Of a save. Healing's not saving. Healing's not saving. Salvation is saving. And those two boys that were seven were saved. So I reached the point where I was able to take my jacket my clothes, whatever, and throw them down before Jesus and say, no, you're my king. Whatever you say, whatever you do, you're my king. The people on this day are getting the easy part over with. You're my king. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Four days from 
crucify him. The word's the easy part. The reality. They were praising him. They were celebrating the mighty works that he had done. And they said these words. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. They're, they're, they're repeating messianic psalms. He must be the Messiah. Look how he's making our life better. He's healing us and everything's getting better. And then eventually he's going he's gonna to deal with the Romans, right? He'll get rid of all of them and everything will be just like we think it ought to be. Is that what's really going on in their mind? Has to be for some of them, no? That was, that was the words that they're declaring. So the Pharisees say to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Yeah. Because the stones, listen, the stones knew what the people didn't. Uh, he is the king. And he is coming. He has salvation with him. He's going to save, just not like they think. He's going to bring the work of salvation. And they're, they're knowing, we saw, listen, the stones. We saw the glory leave. And now the glory is coming back. In Romans chapter 8, it says, All of creation groans for the revealing of the children of God, the sons of God, right? For the revealing of those who have been saved, for the end of the curse, for the, for the change of the universe when Jesus Christ becomes king. All of creation groans. So Jesus said, man, if these people were quiet, even the stones would cry out. Even the stones would cry out. Here comes the king. He's coming back. He's coming back in the door that he left out of. He's coming back. He's coming back into the presence and says, then when he drew near to the city, as he gets near to the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Jesus coming to the city, and all these people are shouting, and they're excited. Oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving their palm branches, and they're throwing their clothes down in front of them. Then why is Jesus crying? Why is he weeping if he, if he looks at them all and he knows, oh yeah, these guys are all for real? Why does he weep when he looks at the city that's going to be destroyed in 30 years, give or take? Why is he weeping? On the day when the glory returns. In Matthew 23, 37, here's one of the things we read that Jesus said as He wept. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. Desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were all just shouting that. I mean, isn't this that day? And Romans 10, 9 and 10, when it talks about salvation, it says, If you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. That's the way of salvation. The words are the easy part. The heart won't lie. Confess with your mouth, believe with your heart. I'll tell you why Jesus is weeping. Again, the prophet Ezekiel, I think, gives a hint. Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel chapter 33. In Ezekiel 18, 23, listen to what God says. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Does God rejoice in the destruction of the wicked? No. What does he say? I want you to live. I want you to live. How many times God's got to say that before that's what he means? Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. How many times God got to say it? How about Ezekiel 33.11? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? Why did Jesus weep when he came to the city? The city's going to be destroyed, 70 AD. That's what he's going to prophesy about. People are going to be destroyed because judgment day does come. But God has no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn. That the wicked would live. How do we live? Confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart. Verse 42. He wept over the city saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Their consequences were going to come. The glory of God come back in. Glory of God came back and fulfilled prophecy. The people praised, and Jesus stood and predicted their future. Ezekiel stood in Babylon and predicted their future. Jeremiah stood in Jerusalem and predicted their future. The people that Jeremiah spoke to, even at the end, when it was all wiped out, there was a remnant of people, and they said, you know what? We're going to keep fighting Babylon. How should we keep fighting them? I don't know. Let's ask Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what do you think we should do? Jeremiah, he says, guys, you got to stop. you got to stop. If you keep fighting against God, you're going to be judged by God. You're going to die. And they say, okay, let's, Jeremiah hasn't changed his tune. He's been saying that so far for the last 30 years. And he has never changed his tune. So I'm not going to do what Jeremiah says. So all the people said, we're going to go to Egypt and we're going to keep fighting. And they went to Egypt. You know what, Jeremiah could have went home. Jeremiah could have said, you know what, I'm so tired of telling you guys anything. You never listen to me. I'm just going to go home. He went with them to Egypt. So he could continue to beg them to repent. And he begged them to repent until the swords of the Babylonians took his life. He died with the people he went to share with 
who would never listen. Not one time. Why should you die, O house of Israel? Turn. Turn, says the Lord. Change your direction. Well, why don't they turn? What did, this, what did it say? But now they are what? Hidden from your eyes. Now they're hidden from your eyes. Well, who's it hidden by? Is it hidden by God? Is God the big trickster in the sky? Did he hide it from them? Some people think so. Some people think God decreed it and so they couldn't see it. Here's my problem with that idea. If their eyes were blind, why did Jesus ever speak in parables? If they couldn't see, they couldn't turn, they couldn't choose, because God had blinded their eyes, why do you use parables? That's like putting a blindfold on a blind man. It doesn't make any sense. Does it? Yeah, I don't think it's God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says the God of this age has blinded their eyes so they cannot see. So they cannot see. Maybe it's the devil. Is it the devil that's doing it? Maybe. Maybe it's the devil. We should all blame the devil. He's the one. Maybe. It's only three possibilities. Why are they blinded? Is it God? I don't think so. Is it the devil? Well, Scripture does say... That The devil blinds the eyes of the unbeliever. The third choice is, it's me. I blinded my eyes. How did I blind my eyes? How have I blinded my eyes? To be spiritually blind is to not see Christ. To not see Christ and not see God. It is a system or an experience that we experience when we have rejected who Christ really is. When we have rejected who Christ really is. And mankind has been looking for a God made in his own image for a long time. A God like us. God who thinks like us, who acts like us, who, who thinks the things that we think are good are good, and thinks the things that we think are bad are bad. We like a God like that. And when mankind comes face to face with the truth, the reality of who Christ is, and rejects that reality, he becomes blind. And the devil finishes the work. He keeps him blind. If our gospel is veiled, it's only veiled to the perishing. To the lost. But Jesus said, I'll leave the 99 to go to the one who is lost. Won't he? Their eyes were blinded. That's one cause. Because you didn't know the day of your visitation. Do you know the day of your visitation? A lot of times we point to the reality that Daniel chapter 9 says this is the day that Jesus would come in. And we can mathematically look through the, the prophecy and figure out this is the day that, that Jesus would have come in. I just, I just sometimes I struggle with the idea that, that all of the men and women and children around the area would, would understand the mathematical prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Maybe they did. Maybe they did see it. I can see it now, or maybe it's something simpler. Maybe what Jesus is saying, did you know that this is your day? I'm here right now. I can save right now. 
Today's the day. Now's the time. It can happen right now. Today's the day of your visitation. Will you turn? Will you come? Will you stop? Will you stop fighting? Will you stop rebelling? And will you come to me and be saved? But because they don't know the day of their visitation, they always say, I got a little more time. And the slow walk to oblivion begins. In Isaiah 49, it says this, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out to those who are in darkness. Appear! They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They will not hunger. They will not thirst. Neither scorching wind or sun will strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. And I will make all my mountain, mountains a road. And my highways will be raised up. Behold, this shall, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and the west and the land of the Cyrene. <laughs> singing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Isaiah 49 is talking about everything that Jesus did in His miracles, but it's talking about every one of those things in a spiritual sense. The hungry is going to feed them. The thirsty is going to give them drink. Those who are lost, He's going to find them. He's going to bring the mountains low. Like a road. And he's going to make the road high. So everyone can see it. So they can know their way. So they walk that road. What's that road? It's a road of life. It's the narrow way that Jesus talked about. It's a way that leads to life. How long before you will turn? The message of Palm Sunday is the glory return to declare to the people. How long will you turn? Because seven days from today. Seven days. Jesus is going to rise. The same people who rejected Him, who brought about ultimately the work that God wanted to usher in salvation, 40 days after that, 40 days later, Peter's going to stand before those same people. And he's going to say, we, you and I, we crucified Christ. We killed the Lord of glory. And they're going to say, well, what shall we do? And Peter's going to say, repent and believe. And you can be saved. And the greatest miracle of all is going to happen in Acts chapter 2. When God transforms thousands in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. He's going to transform them to life. And their life is never going to be the same. That's all begun a week earlier, a week before Easter, when Jesus walks into the city. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul said this, For he says, God, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. That's Isaiah 49. And then Paul says, Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. 
Salvation is close. Do you see it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to study your word, God. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you just wash out the nonsense and help us hold on to the truth that your word declares. In a favorable time, you heard us. The glory returned. And you said your king would come humbly with righteousness and salvation. And Jesus came in. The glory of God entering into the city. For four days he's going to teach him. For four days he's going to declare who he is. But in the end, man's going to reject him. Man's going to cry out, we want Barabbas. We don't like this king. He doesn't do things our way. And that was part of God's purpose. God wasn't fooled. He knew what man would do. Because he knows man's broken. And while I can fix the brokenness of man on the outside, it takes a greater work to fix the brokenness of man on the inside. So Jesus, who was not broken, became broken for me. So that I could become whole. Jesus was nailed to a cross. Scourged. His life taken surrendered ultimately from his own lips father into your hands i commit my spirit i give you my life and so the flesh died there that that broken piece of flesh became the symbol for my wholeness three days later he proclaims the victory and he says now The resurrection can resurrect life in me. Now he who has been raised from the dead can raise my life. Not just physically, not just make my physical body better or my physical experience better, but that he can do greater. He can transcend that and reach inside to the real me, the messed up me, the twisted me. And he says, I can make it straight. I can make it right. You just got to put your faith and trust in me. You just got to lay down your clothes before me. I'm coming humbly. I'm not coming and forcing you. I'm not making you bow your knee. I'm not holding a sword over you. I'm coming humbly through the gate of mercy. And I'm declaring, here I am. I'm the resurrected king. I became broken so you could be whole. God, I just pray that each of us would come to that place where we are satisfied with the God who is. And we can say, I I am yours. I need to be made whole. I want that healing. I want the healing on the inside. I need to be a new creation created in Christ Jesus. I don't want you just to make my life better on the outside. I want you to change me. Make me the man you want me to be. Make me the person you want me to be so that my life matters. And all the while, the God of heaven cries out, weeps looking at creation and says, why will you die? Why will you die? Why is dying better? 
than letting me fix you from the inside out? Why is rejecting my love better than receiving the love that loves you just like you are? Turn and live. Turn and live. God, as we just look to you this Palm Sunday, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. And while we sit here this morning, I just want to give an opportunity. If you don't know Jesus that way, you haven't laid down your cloak before Him, declared yourself to be His man, received the wholeness that Jesus wants to give. He's here. Salvation is near. Do you see it? All day long I reach out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people, but the miracle is all day long He reaches out His hand. Whosoever will can call in the name of the Lord. If that's you this morning, everybody else is just sitting there praying with eyes closed. I just want to invite you to stand up where you are. Salvation is near. Do you see it? Will you take it? Will you lay hold upon that for which He has laid hold of you? As you stand, God sees. The easy part is over. You've stood. And the Lord wants you to know where you stand. That you are His. For now. And forevermore. For those who have stood, Lord, I pray, God, Your blessing upon them. I pray that you hear the cry of their heart that says, Lord, I I haven't done this. I, I haven't laid myself down before you. I haven't declared myself as your man or woman. And I'm doing that now. By standing, I am saying, you are my king. And I am yours. So, Lord, forgive them for their sins, which are many. And help them love you much. For the glorious work that you have begun, your word promises to finish. And as we lift this morning to you, God, we pray the blessing on those who have not stood, who are proclaiming by staying seated that I am, I've already said this, I've already declared myself as God's man or woman, I am His then God, equip us. Equip us to change the world around us. Help us understand Your Word more clearly. Help us be the men and women You're asking us to be, that we might glorify Your name. And God, that You would be magnified in all we say and do.
God, I pray that you would do a perfect work. Both those who have begun now and those who began a while ago. Finish us. Make us useful instruments of God that we might glorify your name in the coming days. Help us be the men and women you want us to be. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.